Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Green Solids podcast. We're now on to season five. We've gone through more than 40 episodes, and we're excited to have some amazing guests as per usual. So to kick off episode one of season five, we have Brigitte, who is the co-founder of Vantare. And what she's trying to do is trying to build an awesome platform that allows small and media enterprises actually look at supply chain emissions and how they can look for suppliers within their operations. It's great to have you, Brigitte. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are on, which are the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders um, and, and indigenous people are both past, present, and emerging. I think in this topic of sustainability, it's important to acknowledge the work that they have done for 65,000 years in preserving land and everything else that they do. All right. So very interesting how Rajiza and I met. I think it was through a LinkedIn call message. And I think it was very interesting because I've sort of seen a little bit of how Manta has developed over time. And Rajiza has a very exciting background. So she's a former engineer. Then she went into corporate law and she was working very hard in the corporate job and she wanted to get involved in a net zero project. And this was maybe like five, seven years ago or more recently. My experience with net zero, it was a couple of years ago, uh, probably around the just before COVID. <laughs> awesome. Just before COVID. And what she did was she saw a lot of firsthand issues in how companies were looking at how they measure sustainability. And this was all through Excel spreadsheets. So quite clunky and quite disjointed. And as many great founders, you want to solve a problem you face. And that led to her co-founding Manta And the whole purpose of Manta as I mentioned before, was helping small and medium enterprises actually access supplier data at their fingertips at a fraction of the cost, and in turn, helping them reduce emissions. So very much aligned with net zero focus that uh, a lot of companies are doing today. So she was a few years ahead of the curve. And then recently, she actually found a technical co-founder and you got a bunch of really awesome stuff. So that's enough of me talking. But the first question I have for you is, how did you come up with the name Manta? It's a very unique name. <laughs> I think the honest answer is I needed a name. And purely coincidentally, I happened to be planning a trip to the Great Barrier Reef yeah. around the same time. And one of the species that's are actually kind of threatened because of ocean acidification as a result of climate change happens to be the giant mandarin. And so this was purely coincidental timing where I'm like, okay, great, let's use mandarin as a placeholder name. And now I'm very emotionally attached to it. So that's the name. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's obviously stopped through. So you may have to go back to the Great Barrier Reef when mandarin, you know, out of, like actually blows up and you can <laughs> sort of pay it forward. Also, that's awesome. Um, just sort of going back to your career, and I think like you've done very hard profession what I see, like going from an engineer to a lawyer, a lot of problem solving, a lot of like technical expertise. And then you sort of went to this fast moving startup space where, you know, it's so common to see founders, you know, like face problems and this, you know, there's obviously like struggles with mental health and a high failure rate of startup. That's the reality. Um, but sort of tell me about the important skills that you've learned through law through engineering and how that helps you today? Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does seem like a bit of a career switch, but there has been a message to the madness uh, along my career journey. So I started off as a material science engineer and got my initial experience working in a battery materials um, startup and also doing a little bit of renewable energy R&D uh, at the time. And 
I really enjoyed, I think, the technology aspect of this and was working in like RD labs. You were, I think, my first co op experience I had. They literally told me to design this chemical process from scratch on, on, on this um, raw material that, that got fed into the battery for electric vehicles. And it was extremely intimidating as a starting point to be like, okay, I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. But it did help sort of teach me to, okay, calm down, take a step back, think about things from first principles and just learn to sort of problem solve. And so what I found was while I loved the technology, I loved the challenge, I loved the problem solving element of working on, you know, that sort of cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happened to be around the time of the first Silicon Valley clean tech bubble vesting around a decade ago. This was in the U.S. And the commercial applications had largely dried up for the types of um, R&D that I was interested in. So the options I had left in an academic research lab on this tech all sort of switch a little bit to the more commercial side. And I thought, well, much as I love this technology, much as I love this space, I think I would work a little bit more closer to the what the market's doing as opposed to, you know, sit in a research lab. And so that was around the trigger for me to sort of switch to commercial law. There was a lot happening in Australia back then with the carbon um, price yeah. policy. It got shortly repealed after that, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> we trained as a lawyer around that time. And as a lawyer, I did get the ex- uh, experience of working on renewable energy deals, both on the equity side as well as the finance side on green bonds. And then I fell into this um, internal net zero project back when I was working as a corporate lawyer. And as you sort of briefly touched on, I discovered firsthand the experience of, uh, yeah, just navigating supply chain emissions, which were 70 to 90 for the emissions for a professional services um, style company. And so it's, uh, I suppose there has been a logical thread that has carried through in my career. It, it has been sort of an interest in this sector and trying to figure out the way to make the most impact. And I guess that's kind of what led me to mentoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a very unconventional path, but I think something that's like really served you well. And I guess like a lot of us are seeing like this climate tech happen, but I guess you sort of saw it firsthand in the US. And I think now's probably like the more ideal time to be in it. And like you sort of navigated that. Um, and then also like heading, when you sort of headed to law, right? Like a lot of people, it's like a, I guess, there are transferable skills, but engineering is quite analytical and quite not this based and law you associate with people or, or people, I guess, who do law, they tend to be very focused on like, I guess, critical thinking as well, but more reading that kind of thing. Um, and also with law, I've seen a huge focus on climate litigation, right? And I'm just wondering, what do you think, what do you think is the key role that lawyers face in climate change and decarbonization? Sure. I suppose, as you mentioned, you know, there are analytical skills to both. And personally, yes, engineering taught me a lot about problem solving, thinking about things from first principles, whereas working in law taught me discipline. It's you need to be very structured. You need to learn how to communicate with a broad range of stakeholders, not necessarily just lawyers. People on every sort of part of the business gets indirectly affected by what you're doing. Uh, To your point around, I guess, climate litigation, Yes, obviously, lawyers are directly involved at the stage it gets to litigation, but there is also a role to play sort of before you get to the litigation stage. Obviously, litigation happens when something has been breached, (laughs) but ideally, um, from a climate perspective, you don't want companies to get to that stage. I think the biggest role that lawyers probably can play in the governance side of things where you can help companies sort of prevent getting to that stage of 
well, whether that's greenwashing or, you know, making sure that waste disposal, et cetera, that's, um, say, compliant with not just regulations, but whatever commitments the company has made. Yeah, awesome. And I think that greenwashing point is super important. And I like it how, like, while litigation has been the focus, lawyers have to play a part uh, throughout that process. Right. When a firm is having a strategy to uh, looking at M and A or looking at more DD, that kind of thing. So it's like you want to focus on the governance stage, and I think that's you know quite quite underrated. Um, and and I guess like lawyers would also play a role, I guess, in data and looking at how and gaps in the data, things like that. Do you think that's a a big part of it as well? Yeah, I, well, I mean, especially as we're getting from voluntary to regulate yeah. um, with the new draft climate financial um, disclosure regulations, yeah. I think obviously lawyers will have a role to play in making sure that whatever the reporting is, is compliant with the relevant guidelines. Yeah, awesome. And going back to that whole concept of data gaps, um, I want to touch on that more because that's something you saw, right? Because like yeah. you're just there internally and then you're talking to many people, right? then I'm guessing you thought they'd have like a process to look at supply chain emissions, CO2 emissions. But in fact, that they actually didn't. It was very much manual and, and spreadsheet and things like that. So that was, I guess, a catalyst uh, in wanting to start Mantra. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I think that especially when it came to supply chain emissions, because it's something that's not directly within and or like a company's direct control, you do need to spend a lot of time gathering the data. And I was expecting, well, other people who've done it probably do have a better way of doing it. But the more I started talking to them, their responses were things like, yep, we send out these paper forms or we manually enter the data into an Excel spreadsheet, which takes months and then basically becomes obsolete pretty quickly because we spend all this time gathering data. Funnily enough, data changes over time yeah. as well. Yeah, I think that, I think there's two elements of it. And I think that's something that I saw in maybe the Techstars article, it's like the process takes so long. And by the time it's done, the data is updated. And by the time the regulation is done, mm-hmm. you've got things like, you know, the ISSB, the sustainability uh, reporting frameworks and things like that. And they happen so often. It's like, how are you going to be up to date? And, and that's going to be like a major problem with the updates in reporting, which something that Mantra is, is trying to help mm-hmm. with his software and things like that. Um, but I guess like in that process of wanting to solve this problem, you did have to make that big transition from like the corporate world where I guess you have like a safe paycheck, but making that transition from corporate to a startup where, you know, it's all on you and you've got no security blanket. And I think that's like what a lot of young people have been looking at like post-COVID. So how did you go about that transition and, and what were the key initiatives or key steps that, that sort of led you to actually wanting to, I guess, become a founder? Sure. I think part of this was this happened during COVID. That was a lot. I was in Melbourne during COVID lockdown. So a lot of time for reflection. <laughs> exactly about what, you know, I was doing <laughs> with my life. And this was definitely, as I said, I kind of experienced the issue firsthand and having all this time on my hands during COVID sort of went down the deep rabbit hole of trying to figure out. Yeah. How are people doing this? What are the solutions in this space? Because surely this is inevitably something every single company is going to have to do. Uh, and I think it was a combination of that that sort of led to, okay, let's um, you know give this a go. And I think the other piece was just the fact that I'd reached the stage of my career where I had learned the transferable skills. I'd sort of, um, obviously I'd worked as an engineer there for a little bit, but I'd also kind of reached sort of the mid-level range as far as my legal career goes where 
I had enough experience in terms of like legal analysis, like working with different stakeholders. And I just thought, well, either what, I feel like I've learned the skills I wanted to from law. So it seems like the right time to apply to the, to mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it was a combination of what you wanted to do and COVID and, and I guess changing priority right and yeah i think it's everything aligning everything, one, everything one aligning stage, and then, one like, time yeah like i think settler green influence as well like i guess another one of those like i love the initiatives and hopefully it continues but yeah and i think like so the emissions co2 emissions is something we talk about a lot and it's at the forefront of many ceos mind and now there's like a huge business case behind it a huge regulation case behind it for all listeners who might not be familiar can you give an understanding of like what CO2 emissions are and why it's so important for companies to actually try and reduce them and to actually set a target. Sure. I suppose in terms of CO2 emissions from a macro climate impact perspective, uh, increasing the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere ends up meaning that it traps a lot more heat that um, doesn't escape, you know, from the surface outside. And that ends up having impacts on I guess there's extreme weather events that have happened, but it also has impacts on just general biological system, ecological systems on um, the giant man race, for example, it affecting their reproductive cycles because of the fact that there's um, increasing ocean temperatures. And that obviously throws off the entire balance within the ecosystem. Yeah. It's um, so, and I guess the key thing with CO2 is the fact that it kind of transcends all boundaries. Just because CO2 is being emitted in, say, country A doesn't mean that the impact is limited to country A. You can be on the other side of the world and it it still affects um, that country. For example, the Western nations are probably responsible for the majority of the emissions from industrial revolution until now. But the key climate impacts are actually currently being faced by people sort of close to the tropics. So Philippines, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, like those countries are most at risk for climate-related um, damage, even though from a micro level, they aren't actually that responsible for the emissions that are, like to say, yeah, yeah. Weather, weather events. So as a result, it's kind of created this barrier for having like a global protocol for companies to actually not just look at their internal operations, but all the external like suppliers and contractors that feed into whatever product that they're manufacturing. For example, let's say this mic in front of you. It's not a simple case of you're purchasing this mic from Amazon. Now, there's every single component that goes into this mic will probably have come from a different supplier. And every single part will have an embodied carbon associated with it. And that's where the complexity around tracking and reporting on CO2 comes in. It's not directly going to be what that Amazon even knows what's happening. They need to engage every single part of their supply chain in order to get a clear idea of what's gone into making this mic. Right, right. And like, I think from a logistics point of view, that's very hard to do, right? Like every single piece of equipment, you need to track the data and you need to have good systems and and like, I don't know, good invoicing or good procurement and all that sort of stuff links into understanding where those emissions come from. And you can see, you can see why there's a huge data gap. And I think this whole issue of supply chain emissions, that links very well to, you know, scope three emissions, I guess in particular scope three, but there's also a link with scope one and scope two. So maybe can you explain to your audience a bit about scope one, two, and three emissions and also how that links to when a company wants to set a net zero target. So what's the link between scope one, two, and three emissions and setting a net zero target? Sure. I guess the specific boundaries might depend on exactly what the company is doing, but scope one emissions, broadly speaking, are emissions that are 
um, coming from the specific company's boundary. So if I'm a manufacturing facility, the scope one will be whatever the emissions this factory is producing, for example. Scope two emissions will be emissions associated with whatever's feeding into the facility. So for example, electricity that's connected into this factory would be scope two emission. Scope three, sometimes it's referred to like as 3A and 3B emissions, yep. where 3A can be upstream. So every sort of raw material or input that's gone into this raw materials for the factory production process would be like upstream emissions. Downstream emissions would be everything from, say, I'm producing this product in my factory, and then that needs to go to like a transport provider before it gets delivered to the end user. So whatever that transport emissions and distribution costs of emissions associated with distribution or whatever to get to that end user, that will be considered downstream emissions. Now, the exact sort of components of this emission will probably depend on what the company is doing and what their activity is. But broadly, that's how it breaks down. Awesome. And then once you've got that emissions, and I'm guessing this is something that you guys would talk to companies too. So you've got your scope one, two, and three emissions. Then how do you set a target from there? Um, because I know like a lot of targets, they are linked to certain uh, limits in the increase of temperature warming, like 1.5 or 2 degrees. So can you just quickly explain how I've measured my emissions or I've got my emissions there. How do I set a target or a science-based target? Yeah, I think the science-based target specifically will have different guidelines for different types of industry sectors because, again, the emissions boundaries will depend. Until relatively recently, I think scope one and two has been required. Scope three has been a little bit, you know, okay, we'll start with scope one and two. We'll deal with scope three after we get our head around it. But I think increasingly... With the new guidelines, we're seeing that scope three has become kind of a non-negotiable for most industry sectors because they do end up being the vast majority of a supply chain. Yeah, awesome. And, and that's a really good segue to what Mantra wants to do because from what I understand, supply chain emissions, and I think you mentioned this, of uh, 80 to 90% uh, are scope three. And scope three, you know, essentially refers to supply chain emissions. So based on that, how does that link to, you know, the purpose of Mantra, you know, like scope three emissions, Mantra, is that like a clear link between them? Yeah, absolutely. So the companies that we're primarily working with um, right now are probably mid-sized office-based businesses. So IT professional services, that type of sectors. And the vast majority of their emissions will come from goods and services that they purchased as part of that operation. Say, I don't know, you're a small consulting company. Most of your emissions, you're not manufacturing anything. So your scope one emissions, not so much. Scope two, I guess the electricity usage, if you purchase it from a renewable source, that's about as much as you can do. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the emissions will be every single thing you're purchasing to actually run that business. From the laptops, the printers, the servers hosting, your files, etc., your business travel, your office supplies. So that's primarily the part that Mantra operates in where we help uh, we work with companies to not just measure, but also reduce those emissions in line with their goals. So rather than relying on industry averages, we use supply level and front level sustainable emissions information. So you can look at, well, this is my current purchases embodied emissions. These are some low carbon alternatives in the market um, so that they can make more informed purchase choices. Right. So if I'm a small medium enterprise, if I go to say a competitor or another company, I'll be looking at an industry average. But is that correct? I suppose it will depend on what um, tools you are using. Uh, there are carbon accounting tools, but um, the vast majority of them in the market do tend to use industry average to estimate um, 
scope three missions. And they're a good starting point to yeah. get your baseline. Yeah. I think the problem that we're seeing is that they don't actually help you then figure out how to reduce emissions because yeah. the only option you have with industry averages is to then reduce spend. But that's not always an option when you're running a business. Yeah, yeah. And then what Madri does is that it goes further by looking at the supplier data and from there, you know, a company can make an informed choice of a, do I want to, do I want to continue with X supplier or do I want to go to Y supplier? So um, when you do like demos with companies, can you just give me a rundown of the process you take them through? Like, like what stages do you take them through? And like, how, if you could try and visualize how you're how you would show them the product, that would be really good. I'll explain how, you, <laughs> sorry, explain how you, you would sort of show them how the product works. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we'll probably start off with understanding at what stage of the sustainability journey they're at, because yes. there, there can be a big difference. But, and then we tend to sort of walk them through the way the platform onboarding works and how they can get set up on the system, what insights we can offer on, on sort of example suppliers yeah. that they have. And so then they can get a feel for how that will work in their specific instance. Okay. So then I guess you would sort of, I like show it to them. Is there a way for them to, you know, track the performance or see how um, emissions can change over time? How do you sort of personalize it for each individual supplier? Is that something that's within the metric club? Yeah. Once they get set up on the platform, we will basically um, integrate with their spend data so they can get live tracking of their supply chain emissions and then they can track from peer to peer how their emissions have evolved. Okay. So when you say peer to peer, what? Sorry, period to peer. Okay. Sorry. Period to sorry. Peer. That's, <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and then I guess like the key question is how do you measure success or how would you recommend that a company measures impact and success? Because essentially this process is making it a lot more efficient save a lot more time, you know, um, companies, you know, can have a lot more hassle-free reporting and that has a lot of benefit for themselves, for staff and for stakeholders. So how would you recommend that a company sort of looks at the impact that they make by using the platform? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately we try to go with, um, we try to start off with asking them what their existing goals are. If they've aligned with any specific framework, then we kind of work with them to help achieve those goals. Um, in the absence of that, we can definitely help them track their supply chain emissions so they can easily see how they're reducing it and how that tracks in line with projected net zero recommendations. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's really cool. And I think like the other question is talking about net zero recommendations, right? I feel like a lot of SMEs probably don't have a mandatory requirement to report a net zero and a lot of the time they might be starting their sustainability journey. But, you know, I think they have a crucial role to play um, because they are going to be the suppliers of larger companies who might need to track their emissions data, things like that. So if there is a regulatory or business case for SMBs to report on emissions and measure emissions, why do you think it's so important for them to um, use Manturay and to make sustainability a priority, even though they're at a the very early stage? Yeah, I mean, even if... There. So to be clear with the draft climate financial disclosure regulations, yeah. uh, they are going to start with applying to the biggest of companies and then sort of work their way down. So yes. there's a transitional period. Even if they don't directly apply to SMEs, though, as you mentioned, if the big corporate customer needs to report on their supply chain, that report, like they, that big company will ask their SME suppliers to still give them the reporting in order yeah. for that company to do the report. So SME should, uh, would need to comply with that indirectly, even though they're not 
they don't directly come under the ambit of the regulation. That's what we saw happen with the Modern Slavery Act. For example, a few years ago, it only applied to ASX 100 corporations. But practically speaking, the only way those corporations could report on the supply chain was talking to every single one of the suppliers, yeah. even if the suppliers weren't directly under that. And as a result, you found that a lot of the SME suppliers that supply these corporations basically had to get their head around what a modern slavery statement was and make sure that they actually had one. Otherwise, they risk losing these corporate contracts. Yeah, I think it's really good because like it, it sort of puts them on notice and helps them get ahead of the curve. And I think, you know, as much as as much as like we want companies to do good, the regulatory effects is a huge impact on driving that change. So, um, yeah, I really hope with this upcoming regulation by the government, the mandatory disclosures on climate, we really see that we really see that progress. And I'm sure there'll be heaps of demand from companies because it, it's a must do. So hopefully we'll have good news for Manturay. I also wanted to talk about, you know, I guess what feedback has been like from customers, because I'm sure like this sort of stuff, a lot of the time, it might be the first time they're sort of automating their admissions management and, you know, like greenwashing is like, it's like the word of the day, the word of the year, whatever, like, you know, like there's been so much talk about it. Companies um, are being affected by it. So yeah, like what has, what have been the main concerns or what has been the main feedback from customers about Manta and about the sustainability initiatives? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, it's a bit of just, you know, an education piece around the, you know, helping them get set up and how to get the best use of the platform. And to your point around greenwashing, it's also about while we aren't built for sort of the time and resource for SME, so we try to get it as quick and easy to set up. We also try to make sure that we're not just feeding them numbers. We, every, you know, data, like we also not just assess the, data number like emissions data on our platform we also assess the quality of the data that we're getting from every source so it's not just a matter of well here's a number we also try to provide guidance on how much should you trust this number um as well to make sure that we are trying to give them a holistic perspective okay on that note like how do you measure the quality of the data yeah it's uh definitely i i think there has slowly been a global movement towards sort of standardizing the framework. So at the moment, there is a little bit of, there are a few different frameworks. Yeah. So we try to assess, you know, the, um, depending on which data source, what framework it complies with and try to um, assess that um, in line with the GHG protocols recommended uh, pedigree. Yeah, awesome. So just having the GHG protocol as like, I guess the guiding light though framework yeah and i think that's going to be an ongoing um iteration as standards evolve and get more rigorous you yeah, also right. get more rigorous in yeah, yeah, as well yeah you sort of have to try and level up with the standards <laughs> yeah and the idea and this is the way that GHG mm-hmm. protocol and even sustainability data inherently yeah. works is we start like it's everyone starts with the baseline which yeah. may not be super accurate but the idea is that you get more and more accurate over time so it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think i think that's that's interesting because it's very hard because like you know with the mission projections you forecast them like 10 20 30 40 years in advance and like you know like it's bound to change it's not going to stay the same and then you have to change the baseline like i, I can assume that must be very difficult for companies so you know like manta and and like and i guess the work that other companies do mm-hmm. is, is quite essential um yeah i want to talk a bit more about the recent progress you made and one thing i found out recently was you have a co-founder now so that's super exciting. So please tell me a bit more about that and, and how you find a co-founder. Uh, yeah, uh, so I think uh, my, when I started Metro, I think my, 
thinking was always I ideally have to bring on board a co-founder, but the co-founder needs to be aligned on several things. Otherwise, it's just too risky. And yeah, I ended up uh, finding him through, uh, well, I was looking for someone like a technical co-founder and a friend of mine who happens to be an engineer with doing a technical fellowship. And he was like, actually, there's so many people here who are impact-driven, who probably have the necessary skills. Yeah. And so he kind of sort of made a, put a shout out in that community. And I actually found, yeah, like the quality of the intro is just through a more qualified yeah. <laughs> channel ended up being amazing. And so that's um, sort of how I met Stefan. And we happened to align, I, I suppose, not just the complementary skill sets, but we also happened to sort of align on the impact, the vision, the mission. Yeah. And all these other things. And yeah, we ended up doing a sort of chess project to see what working together would be like. Oh, yeah. People sort of jumping into it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I like, yeah, from what I've heard, being a founder is exceptionally stressful. So it's good that you have someone to bounce ideas off and complement each other. That's super exciting. No, that, that's really cool. Um, the other exciting thing is tech starts. And that's something you've been like, you know, working on for the like past year or so. Oh, I've been part of the program for the, you've been part of the program for the past year, right? Oh, since July. July. Yeah, well, well, there you go. It's I feel you've done so much. It's been like a year, but yes, you were one of twelve startups selected into TechStars. So, how did the program serve as like a mentoring, um, a mentoring initiative? How did it help you fast track your goals? Yeah, I mean, to your point, even though it is a three month program, it simultaneously feels like these um like time has flown by, but it also feels like it's been a year. Yeah, yeah, my bad. There's a lot happening at once, but no, I, I think it's a great program. Um, it, uh, for me, I'd say my favorite part about it was just the fact that you get to be surrounded by this group of, um, start, uh, like amazing, um, inspiring other founders. The startups might be in completely different spaces at completely different stages, but I just feel like it's, it, what's fascinating is how much you can still learn from one another, even though someone might be doing a D2C startup as this is what we're doing, which is B2B. You're still, I guess, ultimately building a bit different. So there's still so much you can still share and learn. Yeah. And, and also a fun fact to listeners of the space we're in now is actually, it's actually um, a space that uh, is organized by Techstars. So yeah, I'm thanking them for being here as well. And so it's, it's definitely an, an awesome program. And I did notice that uh, you had your uh, demo day couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. And Mantari actually contributed to reducing the emissions at the event. That's so cool. How did how did that work? Yeah, absolutely. So Techstars was actually one of our pilot customers. So we helped them with tracking the emissions for the accelerator program um, and sort of making more sustainable choices. And specifically for Demo Day, yeah. we worked with them to make sure they were choosing from sustainable options in terms of the catering, in terms of plastic-free signage, et cetera. And just sort of making those switches within a tight budget. By the way, for the event, we managed to reduce the emissions um, by 21% uh, just by making those, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, did that help you in the pitches? Well, I mean, like, it helps out, like, be able to show okay, yeah. so, well, this is how we, we can, yeah, clearly help you. Decom not just, yeah, measure emissions, but actually decarbonize. Yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. And then, sorry, how did you get to that 21% reduction? So was the previous sort of baseline or benchmark something that was on the mandatory profile and you sort of compared it to the new like emissions? Yeah, I think we just compared that this would be the event profile, this would be the event profile with the alternative. Um, okay, yeah. okay, very cool, very cool. 
Um, and then, yeah, I guess like, you know, like now you've had good experience at Techstar, as I'm sure you're going to be on many more podcasts, but what is the next exciting thing that Manta is working on? What are your goals for the next six to 12 months? And um, how are we going to see you guys really reduce those emissions? Absolutely. So I guess at the moment we're working with the first few customers. So we're hoping to onboard more customers as we go. So quick plug. If you're a medium-sized office-based business looking to reduce your supply chain emissions, please get in touch. And yeah, ultimately, the vision here is to help these mid-sized businesses where there's usually one person, one to maybe two people managing sustainability within these organizations. And we want to free them from spending their entire time gathering data to actually acting on the data. Mm. That's the big vision. And that's what we're hoping to implement over the next year. Yeah, right. And what and, and just for our audience as well, like, so you're focusing on like medium sized kind of businesses? Yeah. So, anywhere from maybe 20 to say 300, 400 full time employees. So, yeah. so from that yeah. size range. Yeah. Awesome. 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 No, definitely got to keep an eye out because, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, like me, I got exposed to a lot of corporate companies, larger companies in consulting. And obviously, they have the tools, but medium sized companies, you know, they have other priorities and um, they probably don't have those access to resources. And I think that cost cutting is definitely going to be a huge thing. Yeah, I suppose, right. Like it's absolutely the price point. And the other piece is the fact that um, a lot of the solutions that are built for the big um, enterprise customers still require a lot of manual data gathering from suppliers. So you still need to do the data collection, whether that's through a consultant or internally, or like they still need, it's a, it's a laborious process, which is not something that would probably have time to do. First of all, and second of all, they may not have leverage to actually demand this reporting from several of their suppliers. Yes. So the way we're built, it kind of automates this data gathering piece entirely to hopefully make it more accessible to um, big size companies than yeah the enterprise solutions are it, at an affordable price. As yeah, well. no, 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 the price point's super important. And then now I just have to ask this question, but you mentioned about the process being quite laborious. So I'm keen to ask what what elements of AI do you use in your tool? Or if you, if you do use it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with the way we've kind of set up the onboarding process, for example, is quick and easy where we integrate with the transactional data and then we use AI to sort of help identify the supplier associated with each spend yeah. line item, categorize the supplier. And so, yeah, we yeah we use AI for the machine learning to yeah. help streamline that process. Okay, awesome stuff. Uh, cool. So now we're going to head to the speed round questions. So nice and fast, but just to give an audience a quick snapshot about your thoughts and other things like that. The first one is a classic one. We ask almost all of our, all of our guests. What advice would you give to your younger self? I'd say to try more different things. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess case in point, you've done so many things in your career already. So clearly, you know, I think you're doing that pretty well. And then the last thing I wanted to ask is, you know, like you've talked about the amazing start. It's a very high period of growth for Manta Ray. So how can our audience, how can everyone in the community find out more about yourself and Manta Ray uh, in order to support you guys? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn or go to our website, which is mantaraclimate.com. Okay, cool. So mantaraclimate.com is going to be on our show notes. So I keep an eye for that. And the last thing with regards is uh, another uh, bonus one that I've included myself. Um, What's your vision for the ideal climate world, let's say by 2050? By 2050. Well, I feel like we should have made progress by then. Otherwise, we are 
little bit doomed. Yeah. But I think the vision for the ideal climate world would be to get to the stage where, first of all, climate information is just as easily accessible. So you can make that informed choice as, say, pricing decisions. And second of all, where actually there is a pricing lever here where if it is a high emissions product, then tax rate, you're better off going for the low carbon alternative. Yeah, I think that green premium has slowly shifted now and like the price of, you know, I guess most standard stuff getting lower. We can see through solar panels and obviously through the work you're doing at at reducing emissions. So, you know, hopefully Mantra will play a really strong part in that climate future and wish you all the best. Um, it's been really good to have this chat. I think like your journey is quite inspiring. The fact that you've, you've actually had the guts to switch from one career to the other, follow your passion and do something new and really tackle into an impactful problem. You know, I know it's not easy for you and your co-founder, but I think, you know, like you guys are doing awesome work and it's been a pleasure to have you on board as our first guest of season five. Thanks, Wiz, and look forward to seeing what season five brings for our great points. I, this is my uh, go-to podcast to listen to on my daily commute. So. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, I'm very humbled by that, but thanks for that. And to all our listeners, welcome back to season five and we'll see you soon.